So today I'll be talking about view or views. The word view is an important word in Buddhism. In fact, you could say in regards to the Buddha's teaching, the most important thing for us to develop, for us to cultivate, for us to purify is view. It's the very first thing we have to uh, pass through in our development of insight, our development of wisdom. It's the first stage of insight knowledge is the purification of view. And what do we mean by view? It means the, our, the way we look at the world or our opinion, our uh, theory, our belief, our understanding of reality, our way of looking at the world. This is what is meant by view. And most views are based most views that are held in the world are based simply on speculation. So we call these speculative views. But there is, there is such thing as a view that is based on true and ultimate reality. And many of our beliefs, many of, the w of our interpretations or our understandings of the world might very well be in line with, with reality. But the problem often exists in our adherence to or uh, acceptance of certain beliefs or ideas which go against reality. And this is the reason why we, have, we fall into suffering, why we fall into difficulty and dissatisfaction. Because we end up doing and saying and thinking things which create conflict with the reality around us based on misunderstanding, based on a lack of understanding of the, the world which we exist in, not seeing the way things work or what is the way to go to find peace and happiness? And so as a result, practicing, acting in a way which leads to our own suffering and the suffering of other, be other beings. If we didn't have this sort of misunderstanding, if we understood the world perfectly, then it's clear that we wouldn't do or say bad things or even think bad things. We wouldn't do or say things which led to our own suffering because clearly that is against our, our wish, against our, our desire. There's nobody who wants something bad to happen to them. We all want for good things to happen to us. But as a result of many of our actions and words and, th and thoughts, many bad things do happen to us as a direct result. And this is due to what the Lord would have called wrong view wrong way of looking at things, um, wrong understanding of things. And so there can be many wrong understandings. I mean, you could say it is wrong understanding if you think that 
suppose you think that to get to Canada from here you have to go south if you go travel south you're going to go to Canada then this is wrong view this is wrong understanding if you think that people can eat rocks then this is wrong understanding and so on there are many kinds of wrong understanding uh, but these kinds of wrong understanding the Lord Buddha didn't say, didn't call wrong view this is not something which this is simply a, a mistake uh, which anyone can make it's possible for someone who is enlightened to still give her a wrong understanding because of being given wrong information uh, or, or so on because of forgetting remembering incorrectly but these things are not karmically active it is not a bad deed to take the wrong turn and think that you have to turn left when actually you have to turn right or if you believe that, say, uh, uh, Los Angeles is the capital of America, this isn't wrong view in terms of Buddhism. You could say it's wrong view, but it's not unwholesome. It's not based on, on uh, a perversion of reality. It's based on a, on a misunderstanding of concepts. You know, you... It very well could be that Los Angeles could be the capital of America. It all depends who you ask. But when we come down to misunderstanding reality, this is the, the problem which, which we're looking at. So it's a misunderstanding of what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. Uh, misunderstanding of karma. For instance, when we believe that killing beings is a good thing, when we believe that stealing is a good thing, when we believe that cheating or lying or taking drugs and alcohol, these are good things to do. This is a misunderstanding of reality, a very dangerous one. Because this leads directly to this, our own suffering and the suffering of other beings. When we have and, and there are many misunderstandings in this way. We can misunderstand that, uh, you know, for instance, many religious teachings that believe that karma doesn't exist. It doesn't matter what you do. If you do kill or steal or lie or cheat, in the end, it all depends on your belief. If you believe in uh, this God or that God, then this God or that God will save you, will save you from your actions. It doesn't matter what evil and terrible actions you do, the way to find happiness is belief in, in, in God, or belief in, in certain teachings. And these are the teachings which the Lord Buddha said are wrong view. They are wrong view because they go against reality. It goes against reality to say that God is going to save you from your karma or by washing in water that somehow you're going to be saved from all evil deeds. Even many wrong views that, that Buddhists have today, like wearing amulets or getting blessings, is somehow going to have the power to do away with your evil deeds. Somehow if you have someone pour water over you, this is going to uh, 
free you from all suffering, free you from all bad results of bad deeds. And if you wear this amulet around your neck, somehow you're going to be free from free from suffering. You won't have to receive the results of bad deeds. And it is possible that some of these things might uh, um, indirectly be able to affect karma. It's true. Um, for instance, if you if you wear a Buddha around your neck, it's possible that it might create wholesome states of mind where you think about meditation, where you think about the good teachings of the Lord Buddha. And as a result, it, this is able to clear your mind up and as a result, you're able to change your life and you find you're feeling yourself feeling happier and more peaceful and you're less affected by bad karma that than you would have been otherwise. Otherwise, when bad karma comes up, when the result of bad karma comes up, you would cry and you would feel great, great suffering. But that suffering becomes less because of your interest in, in meditation, in the purification of the mind and so on. But there's no, there's no magic that comes from wearing something around your neck, be it a Buddha or a cross and so on. It has to do with the state of mind. It has to do with the very karma which exists in the mind, your intention, your uh, will, your mind state at, the, at every moment. And then there are many, many beliefs, uh, beliefs about the, the next life when you die. Uh, some people believe when you die, then there's nothing. And they base this view on their understanding of the world as being physical, as I've talked about many times. So scientists nowadays, they believe that when you die, that's it. Because the mind is simply a product of the brain. And they're unable to see things from an experiential point of view because they never they never thought to look at things from the point of view of reality of experience. Their idea of reality is something very conceptual, and so they come up with this idea that when you die, there's nothing. Other people come up with this idea that there is a self or a soul which transmigrates from birth to birth. When the body dies, that, that soul leaves this body and goes to find a new body. And that soul is permanent. Which also is a speculative view. It doesn't go, it doesn't hold up in reality because of course no one can experience this permanence. We experience a sort of continuity. This is true, but this is only because of our inability to look closely. When we look closely at our mind, when we practice meditation, for instance, we see that the mind is arising and ceasing. It's changing at all times. That there is no stable core. There is no continual being which we can perceive in any way, shape, or form. But when we don't practice, we get this idea of I, of self, which of course is an idea which we've cultivated for a long time. And it's an idea which leads us to then force things. It leads us to try to force and control ourselves, control our body, control our mind. This is what keeps us from letting go. And the fact that we can't let go is what keeps us 
from being happy, from being at peace. When we try to control ourselves to always do the things we want, to always say the things we want, to always think the things we want, to always experience only good things and not experience bad things. This is what leads us to suffering. Not being able to appreciate, not being able to accept experience as it is. Always having to, having to change things, make things stable. We don't like things the way they are, so we have to change things. Uh, we don't want things to change, so we have to try to control them to stay, find any way. We become very desperate in our, in our quest to change things or in our quest to keep things the same because of this idea of soul or, uh, or self. And so there are many, there are infinite number of speculative views that could exist. And there's no reason to believe any, any one of them more than another. In fact, there's no reason to believe any of them whatsoever. And when, when we look at this, when we see this in this way, it's, it's quite ridiculous how, it's easy to see how ridiculous it is how people cling to these views. How ridiculous a certain religious group clings to certain views as true and, and only the only truth. And then another religion clings to other beliefs which are as true and the only truth. And these views are often contradictory and mutually exclusive. And you can see that neither one has any, anything over another one. They might be more persuasive, more appealing, but none of them have any real basis in reality. Or they have very little basis in reality. But the majority of the views, the majority of beliefs that exist out there are simply speculative. And it's it would be impossible to test, it would be impossible to prove. And there being millions of them, it's clear that neither one, and none of, the, none of them have any uh, clear authority or, or supremacy over the others. So when we get to what the Lord Buddha taught, we're always careful to explain, careful to, to uh, provide warning first that we say this is based on reality and we're not asking you to believe it. We're asking you to find out for yourself, to test out for yourself. And we're asking you to consider this as an explanation of what you're experiencing. And if it accords with what you're experiencing, then you know for yourself that it is true. So the, the view in, in Buddhism, what we call right view, well, it works in two ways. In one way, it's an idea of what, it's an explanation of reality so that you know what you're, aim, what you're aiming for, what you're looking to, to see. And um, on the other side, it's a correction of wrong view to help you to, to explain things or help you to understand things in a new way. So for instance, the Lord Buddha is teaching on, on karma. So he said, when you do a good deed, you get a good result. When you do a bad deed, you get a bad result. But he went one step further and said that the only, thing, the only <clears throat> way something is a good result or the only way something is a good deed or a bad deed is because of the uh, state of mind when you make the action. Because otherwise it's speculative and has no, no real basis in reality. For instance, 
if you step on an ant uh, and you don't realize that the ant was there, then it's it's not it's very difficult to see how that is somehow magically going to create some very terrible result. And so this is why karma is very difficult to see. We can't understand, well, why should if I kill someone, why is that a bad deed? You know, there's clearly no result that comes from it. The person dies and you know, they don't get up and kill and attack us. Or we don't suddenly die as a result of, being, of, of killing. So people are unable to understand karma and they believe it to be a speculative view. Because in many, of course, in many traditions, karma is, is a very speculative thing. The belief is if you do this certain ritual that it's going to somehow magically give sp uh, special results or good results or in the future. So all of the religions of the world have these good acts, these rituals that you should perform and this is karma or a good deed. But Buddha, the Buddha uh, denied that. In fact, he denied the whole idea of karma as, as being uh, a physical action or a verbal act verbal speech. He said karma is the state of mind. The state of mind that arises when you kill someone is very perverted. It's a very terrible mind state. And that mind state leaves a very strong imprint on your mind. It changes who you are. People who have never killed, if they've never killed in hunting or um, you know, in, in their daily life, killing animals or so on, they don't understand this, but if you've ever killed a, a living being, you can understand how, how, how it does change, it does affect the way you are. And when the bigger the animal is, the more advanced a, a being it is, the more terrible reaction, it, a, a result it has on your being, the act of killing. It changes who you are. It makes you a more base sort of person. Really and truly, in reality, it does. When you steal, when you cheat, when you lie, even just taking drugs and alcohol is something that affects the mind. But in short, any any act which is done out of greed, anger, and delusion, this is karmically active uh, karma. This is an action which is karmically fruitful, and it will give, will most likely give a result, or it is has the potential to give a result. Now, the result it may give, of course, this is very difficult for us to see, if not impossible for us to really get a feel for exactly what result it's going to bring, but we can see that it has an effect on our mind. It's changed who we are. It changes how we act, changes how we react to the world around us. But the, so one very important Buddhist view is the view of karma, view of, of cause and effect, and this is based on the state of mind. The other, the more important view is the view of non-self, which the Lord Buddha taught. It's a view which denies the existence of a self in regards to the body, in regards to the mind, in regards to the, the things which make up a living being. The Lord Buddha denied that any of these things are self, are under one's control, belong to any being. And so we can see how self plays a very important part in religion, but it also plays a very important part in how we live our life our belief that we can control things, our belief that we can influence uh, the results of things, that we can force things to be the way we want. Now we have to be careful here. We're not talking that um, life is some sort of determin deterministic uh, 
faded sort of existence where we can't do anything. Because it's clear that something can be done. At every moment we can make a choice. We can make a choice in many different directions. We can get angry, we can get greedy. We can cultivate certain good states or we can cultivate certain bad states to a certain extent. Now, to a certain extent, these states are also predetermined by, by being, having been cultivated in the past. But there clearly is a part of us which can uh, give rise to, uh, to future karmas. So we don't, have the, we don't indulge in the view of being uh, fatalistic, where we believe that there's nothing that can be done. In fact, it is in the present moment that everything has to be done. But we don't have this idea of being able to control things, even our, our own kilesa, our own defilement. So we're not trying to control so that we never get angry. In fact, this is the key to the Lord Buddha's teaching, is, not, is to see that these things are, are out of one's control. So we practice to see clearly. We practice to stop trying to control things and just to, to watch things. And we see, of course, that even just watching things is something which we can't control. We can't control that we're always going to be mindful, we're always going to be clearly aware, but we can train in this. And so there is an, a gradual training that we're able to slowly, slowly bring ourselves to uh, see clearly about the reality around us. And as we do so, we, we see clearer and clearer that the things both inside of us and in the world around us are out of our control, are impermanent, are changing at all times, are unsatisfying, are a cause for suffering when we do hold on to them, when we cling to them. And when we see this, we, we do away with a view of a self or a soul, uh, but we also do away with the idea that there is no control, that, there is, that everything is faded, is deterministic, that there is no change that can be made. People become evil because uh, it's faded that there be evil, or so on. So we have to be careful. We're not saying that, uh, that things are faded. We're not saying that there is no change that can be made. What we're saying is that uh, trying to force things does not lead to the res does not lead to the result which is expected. Uh, trying to force things leads to suffering, but there is something which can be done, and this involves many mind states which arise uh, when we practice inside meditation. We give rise to all sorts of wholesome mind states. If we don't practice inside meditation, if we decide to do all sorts of bad things, then we give rise to uh, all sorts of unwholesome mind states, and this leads to a uh, painful or suffering result. So this is understanding about right view. Right view, in, in, in essence, it means giving up, giving up views, not clinging to any views, and coming to see reality simply for, it, for what it is. Um, but we take the Lord Buddha's words and we we use them as sort of a guide while we are practicing. And we are free to examine and to doubt and to consider carefully these views. Uh, but we take them at least at face value so that when we practice we can learn uh, and we can see whether these, these views do stand up to reality.
just like any other view. And when we see that the Lord Buddha's teachings do stand up to reality, then we, we accept this as right view. We accept this as the right understanding of the world because it is in line with the reality which we experience. But most important is not this ex blind acceptance of views. The most important is the realization for ourselves of reality. And in order to gain this, it is very important that we give up all sorts of wrong views. So how do we go about giving up wrong views? Well, I've sort of given it away already, and the practice of meditation is very instrumental in giving up wrong views, of course. But there are other things which help us to give up wrong views as a sort of preliminary practice. And so altogether, the Lord Buddha gave five practices which allow us to give up wrong views. The first practice that allows us to give up wrong view is morality. The second is learning, study. The third is uh, discussion. And the fourth is tranquility meditation. And the fifth is insight meditation. So these five things, the Lord Buddha said, are very instrumental, are very important in helping us to come to understand the reality of the world around us. First of all, the practice of morality. Because when we, had, when we don't have morality, our mind is totally off balance. Our mind is like, you could say, out of, completely out of harmony with, with the reality around us. People who don't have morality, it's of course very difficult for them to practice insight meditation. It's very difficult for them to see clearly. Their minds are always full of anger, full of impatience or irritation. When something bad comes up, they have no, they feel no guilt in as far as um, doing violence or getting angry or saying bad things. And so they have no patience. Because they have no patience, they're not able to see reality as it is. So it's very important if anyone's going to come to practice meditation, they, they'd be encouraged to keep at least five precepts. That they're able to keep at least a basic set of moral precepts in terms of not killing, not stealing, and so on. Because these things are, are very uh, very gross sort of defilements, or very gross sort of uh, karmas, which lead to a very strong imbalance in the mind, and lead the mind to become very uh, unbalanced. So very, very out of tune with reality. The second thing which we need to do is we need to listen. And this is where I said learning about the Lord Buddha's teaching is something which helps us to gain right view. So the more we understand about the Lord Buddha's teaching, sort of the easier we are to accept the things which we experience in meditation. It's, it's very easy for people who come to meditation to come here to meditate to be very upset by what they experience. They come practicing meditation thinking that they're going to feel peaceful and calm or that everything is going to be just as they expect it to be. And they think, they don't understand why when they practice that everything is out of their control and changing all the time. and uh, They don't even understand where they're going. They don't understand why they should have to put up with this, and they don't know really what to 
do when they practice meditation. So the most important thing is that we, we listen first. We listen to someone teach the Buddha's teaching and we come to understand you know, why is it that we're practicing and what is it that we have to practice. For instance, if we never learned about the four foundations of mindfulness or how to be mindful, we could sit still for a hundred years and we might never come to any real realization. Of course, there are many people who practice meditation for years and years and years and never come to any understanding of themselves. When they come out of meditation, they still have many kinds of suffering and attachments because they never had any instruction on how to practice to see, to see themselves, to see clearly. And when we practice meditation, we might think that there is something wrong with what we are uh, experiencing. Why is it changing all the time? We think this means that our practice is no good. The more we practice insight meditation, in fact, the more chaotic it seems to get. Our minds seem to get less and less under our control at all times. We suffer more and more as we practice. Things are less and less appealing. All we see is unpleasant things. Uh, even things which used to be pleasant to us become unpleasant. So many people want to run away. And in fact, many people do run away, especially people who have no familiarity with the Lord Buddha's teaching. They've never heard of teachings on impermanence or unsatisfaction, suffering, and uh, non-self or, no, or uncontrollability. But when we explain these things to people and help people to understand these things, and they listen, they can come to appreciate that actually this is the nature of the world. They can come to say that, well, actually this is what they experience in their daily life as well. This isn't something that is particular to insight meditation. In our daily life, we experience a great amount of impermanence, and this is what has caused us so much suffering. If we're someone who hasn't had a lot of suffering, then maybe it's not clear, but for those of us who have experienced the impermanence of life, when things change suddenly and we're left suffering because of our attachment, unable to control or unable to force things to be the way we want, then we can truly appreciate this teaching. We can truly appreciate insight meditation because it helps us to let go. It helps us to see this as reality. When we see this as reality, we no longer become upset by it. When things change, we're not upset because we know that everything changes. We've come to brace ourselves. When we see again and again that every little bit of who we are and the world around us, what, what is the world around us, every little bit of it is impermanent. And when anything changes, we already it's like something we already knew. We, it's something we already understand for ourselves, so it doesn't catch us by a surprise. As a result, we don't cling to things. Anything that we would cling to, we look at it first and we say that that's impermanent. Like as we're going to stand on something, when we see that it's unstable, we don't go and stand on it. We don't put any of our, any of our weight on it because we know that it could fall apart at any time. In the same way, we don't cling to uh, things which we know are, are unstable. And we don't try to force things. The most important thing is we don't try to force or to change things. We let things be the way they are. This is what is meant by non-self. That we come to appreciate things as, as uh, something like perfect just the way they are. Not having to change or to force things. Knowing that reality is the way it has to be and there's no wishing or wanting for it to be otherwise.
And so this is the second thing which is, which is very important, that we can't just expect that we sit down and practice and somehow we're going to become enlightened. That's very, a very difficult thing to do. It's much easier for us to get lost and go down the wrong road. This is the second thing. The third thing is we have to discuss. Now discussion here simply means talking with the teacher. And this is why uh, it's very important that the meditator has a chance to talk with the teacher every day. So we give everyone a chance to talk with the teacher every day. And this is very, extremely important in the meditator's practice, even more than listening to group talks. Because in, in the one-on-one -on -one conversation that we can really appeal to the person's individual needs and individual misunderstandings to help them to understand. It's then which they, when they can ask us, why is it changing like this? Why is it that I feel so much suffering? The more I practice, the more suffering I have. And where we can explain to them that it, it's not the practice which making you suffering, it's your own attachment. You can ask yourself, if you weren't holding on to it, would it really be able to make you suffer? And so we're able to give information to the meditators that they need at that time. We're able to answer the meditators' questions, just like the Lord Buddha did in with with his meditate with his monks when the monks had problems he would answer their problems the monks had questions they would come to see the lord buddha and he would give them advice based on their own problems so here we set up a routine where we say well you're coming for intensive practice once a day you can come and see the teacher and so then you have time this is m most important to give up wrong views it's also important to help meditators give up wrong practice when they get on the wrong track and teacher is able to pull them back on the right track so they don't get caught up in things, uh, attaching to things or getting lost in conceptual objects or so on. Then the fourth, the fourth important thing is tranquility meditation, where our minds calm down. Because it's impossible to suggest that without calming the mind down we could somehow see clearly when our minds are all messed up and mixed up it's impossible to think that we should be able to see impermanence, suffering and non-self we should be able to see the reality we should be able to see those things which we need to see in order to let go in order to be free just like a pool of water that is all muddied or mixed up as long as it is still waves and uh, being stirred up and so on it's impossible to see anything that, that exists in, that lives in the, in the bottom of the pool, in the bottom of the pond. But when the water calms down and the dust settles, then we're able to see whatever is in the pond very clearly. We're able to see the fish and the stones and all the little creatures living in the, in the pool. The mind is, is very much the same way. When our mind is all flustered and messed, mixed up, we can't really see anything about how the mind works. We can't see the de intricate details of what's going on. We're too caught up flying around after our thoughts and our wants and so on. So the first thing we do for meditators is instruct them to focus on a specific object. Here we focus on the rising and the falling of the abdomen. And this is because it allows the mind to calm down. It's not specifically tranquility meditation. Here we're not spending too much time on tranquility. In fact, according to the Buddhist tradition, we're, we're, the path which we're taking here is sort of a streamlined path where you take only the very basic, necessary, only the very necessary 
tranquility, the least necessary. So we don't get into deep states of concentration, which would be generally a preliminary to practicing vipassana meditation. We say all we need is, is so much concentration as allows us to see clearly, to be free from liking and disliking, uh, drowsiness, distraction and doubt long enough so that we can see clearly from moment to moment. So we're focusing on, on practicing insight meditation. But the first thing that happens still is that our mind calms down. When we practice insight meditation, as we practice on and on and on, our minds calm down. And as a result, we're able to do away with many wrong views. Right away, we're able to do with many wrong ideas about practice, about reality. So when the meditator first starts to practice, when they watch the rising and the falling, when their mind starts to calm down and is able to see the rising and falling, they're able to see that actually all that's all there is in terms of reality. There's only the rising, the falling, and then the mind that goes to know the rising, goes to know the falling. There's no self, there's no soul, there's no uh, being under control, controlling the whole, whole process. In fact, they see clearly that any time that they try to control the process, it only leads to great suffering and, and discomfort. It doesn't lead, that, lead for any, to any sort of control whatsoever. And so they're quickly able to do away with this wrong view and this wrong understanding of being able to control or of there being a self or, or so on. Then they're able to also do away with the misunderstandings about karma, thinking that maybe getting angry is a good thing or that liking something is a good thing because they see that any time that they get angry or any time that they like something, it leads to great stress and suffering for them. And this is simply through a basic practice of, of tranquil, tranquility or the practice of vipassana meditation in the beginning which leads to the tranquil, tranquility of mind. But when the practice of vipassana meditation gets on to the higher stages when there really and truly arises insight, this is what really and truly does away with wrong view and does away with wrong view forever. And the wrong view which it does away with here uh, it's done away with through the realization of, of the path or the realization of Nibbana. At the moment when the mind uh, leaps away, the mind flies away, at the moment when the mind is released, when the mind goes into uh, this uh, state or this um, reality which we call release or freedom, where the mind is no longer... Uh, seeing, no longer hearing, no longer smelling, no longer tasting, no longer feeling, no longer thinking, where all of these things have ceased. There is no more seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. When the mind is something like free, free from all experience, and what we say is all of experience has ceased without arising again, then this, of course, does away with, with any sort of wrong view in regards to experience that experience like in this way or that way is me, is mine, that there any, is any sort of self or soul, the idea of permanence, the idea of happiness and any of these things is done away with. And there's a realization of where true happiness and true permanence lies and it lies in this cessation, which we call the cessation of suffering. When all uh, formed experience or all impermanent experience ceases, and there's no more seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. There's no more 
of the five aggregates. And this is through the practice of vipassana meditation. It comes about as follows. When the, as the meditator practices on and on and on, they go through many stages of, of insight until the point where they are able to see very clearly the three characteristics in terms of all phenomena which they experience. And the three characteristics are they see impermanence about everything. They see that everything which they experience is changing, is unstable. They see that everything which they experience is unsatisfying. It's sort of, you could say, it's suffering. It's not worth clinging to in any way, shape, or form. Something which leads only to suffering for as long as we cling to it. And that everything we experience is unstable or is uh, uncontrollable. I can't say it belongs to us. It's something that really belongs to its own nature. And when, when we see one of these th three characteristics, it'll become clearer than one of the others. There's a, a moment in the practice where the mind sees clear, very, very clearly one of these three characteristics. And that is the moment where the mind uh, lets go and the mind is freed from sensual experience, free from all experience, you could say. And the mind it goes, it, it goes into some sort of cessation we call uh, nirodha, it's called or uh, nirvana, nibbana, this uh, release or unclinging, being unbound from the uh, this slavery which we, where we are slaves to suffering, having to experience unpleasant things again and again and again. And when the mind becomes released in this way, it, it only takes a few moments, but from that point on, the, the, the meditator has become a new person. They've done away with any uh, wrong view in terms of thinking that happiness could be found somewhere in this world or that there's a self or a soul or so on. And all sorts of wrong practice are also done away with. They couldn't ever practice in a way that was useless because they know their way which, which leads to freedom. They've experienced for themselves true freedom, even just for a short time. And if they practice on and on and on, they can realize this freedom again and again and again, more and more frequently, until the point where they no longer have any clinging or any attachment or any desire for being reborn or coming back. And at that point, then there's no more need for them, or there's no more uh, reason for them to be reborn again, and they are no longer subject to the rounds of rebirth. So in general, this is an understanding of, of how and the things which we need to include in our practice. It's very important, of course, that we keep the moral precepts even in our daily life if we wish to uh, progress in the meditation practice. It's very important that we listen to the teaching and come to understand what is the practice that we need to do and at least try it out, at least suspend our disbelief to the point where we can begin to practice. Then we have to meet with a teacher. Meeting with a teacher is very important. Being with a teacher, having them able to guide and instruct us. Then we have to practice and calm our mind down, stop our mind from running away. This means slowly bringing it back again and again and again. When it's wandering, uh, having it to focus again and again and again on the present moment until it starts to pick it up by itself. And then we have to start to look and to see clearly and, and watch the reality and see the, re see the reality around us for what it is. 
So this is the this is an understanding first of all of what we're trying to gain in the practice, which is right view, and also a sort of a guide for how we go about attaining right view. And so this is the Dhamma which I'd like to give for today. And now I'd ask everyone to continue practicing. First do mindful prostration, then walking and then sitting.